you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to take them and turn with me to Genesis chapter 6 as we continue on in our series through this great book. I want to welcome every single one of you here today. God has blessed us with a beautiful day. And to already have the opportunity as Pastor Aaron led us before the throne of grace in prayer and as Matt led us in song and in worship. I think of the circumstances to which you have come into God's house this morning. Some of you are coming out of a week of celebration and joy and blessing, and others of you have come in a season of exhaustion or frustration or even fear and worry. But praise God, this moment has been established since the foundations of the earth were set for us to be reminded of who God is and how he ministers to each one of us. If this is your first time at Big Woods, a special welcome to you. Before I dive into this, even before I pray, one one brief kind of announcement I want you to be aware of. Um, As we seek to minister to one another in difficult seasons, Um, In times of blessing or exhaustion, we we not only at Big Woods seek to do that to one another within our own body, but it has been a goal of mine, and we have worked diligently to do that alongside of other churches in our community. You do understand that Big Woods is not the only church that's preaching the gospel. And so I have worked diligently alongside of other pastors and elders to establish relationships over years. And we meet regularly together and pray regularly together with area churches. I wanted to let you know that Big Woods has been given an opportunity to minister to another local church over these next three months. Uh, Maranatha Bible Church, led by Pastor Sean Grubb and his wife Tina, um, are going through a season of Sabbath rest. If you remember several years ago, um, Big Woods allowed me to go on a sabbatical. And so what we are encouraging for Pastor Sean as we've come alongside of him is for him to go on a sabbatical. And so when a church goes, when a pastor goes on sabbatical, there's usually a pulpit that needs to be filled for those three months. So I wanted to let you know that Big Woods, okay, men from within this body will be going over to Maranatha every single Sunday to fill the pulpit to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to the body of believers at Maranatha Bible Church. And they'll be doing that uh, beginning next Sunday, the 24th, for the next three months all the way into the month of December. So I want to let you know that. And if you see one or two men missing, that's where they are, okay? So I want to remind you to be praying for uh, Brandon Zembauer as he'll be filling the pulpit. I actually believe he starts next week. Uh, Daniel Nauta will be preaching over there. Matt McDermott will be preaching over there, as well as Pastor Aaron and Pastor Stewart. And our goal is just to come alongside of that body, and particularly Pastor Sean, and to just give him a break from ministry and pour into him the best that we can. Matter of fact, you probably will see Pastor Sean and and Tina here a little bit. Greet them and welcome them as they are able to have a little bit of a break from ministry, and Big Woods is able to kind of come alongside that church at that time. 
So I'm excited and encouraged for the men who are willing to do that and for us not only be a blessing, hopefully, to one another within our own body, but within the greater body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to know that before we kind of dive into our text this morning. Lots to cover here, although it's a brief text, just verses 9 and 10 of Genesis chapter 6. I'll read it in a moment. Would you first bow your heads and pray with me as we dive, dive into his word together? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we are so grateful for another day you have blessed us with. You've sustained us through the evening. Your mercies are new today, and, and in your sovereign will, you've allowed us to gather like this. And we already thank you for the blessing that you are and for the strength that you offer, for the peace and for the comfort, for the renewal of our minds and our hearts, the restoring of minds that are frustrated or tired or fragmented. Father, as we focus on you and your word, we thank you for the cross of Jesus and for the hope that exists and for the time that we will have later on to celebrate the communion table and what you have done for us. Lord, in these few moments, um, I am in need of you. And I confess that I, I do not have what is necessary over these next few moments. And so, Lord, will you please give the strength, the clarity of word and speech so that everything that is said and done would exalt the name of Jesus, would edify this, this wonderful body of believers, and most importantly, bring glory to you and to you alone. We ask this now in your son's name. Amen and amen. Okay, uh, we introed chapter 6 last week, and as I kind of began with those opening verses, I kind of told you it, it reads dark, if you recall. And I, I don't want to belabor it, but by way of a review, it was the worst of times, and it was the worst of times. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, pretty much summarizes it up. If you recall this from last week, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And just wrapping our mind around those words, every, only, continually. However, as one has famously stated, it is in the darkest night that the light shines brightest. This is exactly the case with the subject, with the individual, the person, Noah, as we are introduced today to God's plan to save the world through one man. Now, you know at Big Woods, we are unashamed as a church to keep the message of the gospel forefront. Now, later on in Scripture, we will see and we will learn that there will be another one. Okay, far more important than Noah. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We, we know that everything points to the incarnation of God himself, Jesus Christ, who will come to pay the price for anyone, for anyone and everyone who receives him by grace through faith, accepting his gift of salvation, regardless of the fact, think about this, that they may be what? Caught every, only, and continually 
in sin. Be encouraged with this. No one is too far gone. Be encouraged with the fact that sometimes you hear a whisper from the lie of Satan that says, no, 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 what you've just done, you've crossed. No one is too far gone. No one is beyond the reach of the hand of God. Although you were dead in your sins, and that is truthful, but God being rich in mercy. We hold on to that. Hebrews chapter 10 says, says that Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. This is the hope. This is the hope that actually what? That Genesis chapter 6 points to. So we keep that in mind. That's the foundation by which we, we, we do everything. So let me direct your attention to verses 9 and 10. It's a brief text for us. How in the world is Pastor Tim going to fill this much on these two short verses? Oh, watch it easily. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you realize or not, but the entire book of Genesis, and it is a big one, 50 chapters, can be neatly divided into 11 sections. And each section is introduced by this phrase right here, these are the generations of. Now this particular section, chapter 6 all the way through chapter 9, will be the longest narrative of any one person thus far. It's important particularly because of the dark, and I would say very, very dark setting in which Noah was born and which Noah lived. Three points I want to give to you this morning. The first one is this. We get a description of Noah's life. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. And we begin with that word in Hebrew, it's sadiq, sadiq, righteous. It's defined as just, it's defined as innocent, and in the right. Now you may also remember that not only is Noah being described here as a righteous person, as a righteous man, but he is also known, and we know in the, in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he is referred to as a preacher of righteousness. And I think this implies something that is very, very important, which means what? Righteousness cannot be contained. It must, what? It must seep out. I love, I love how the author of Hebrews says this by way of a description in chapter 11. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, we'll get there, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And this so perfectly describes what? These phrases, in reverent fear, he became an 
heir of righteousness, which means what happens? He's passing along the blessings and the consequences of sonship that flows from him to his offspring, to what? To the patriarchs of Israel, to whom what? Promises belong, and ultimately what? To the rest of the world, to you and to I. He's an heir of righteousness from Noah, and we'll see later, to what? To Shem, through the line of Abraham, to David, to Jesus. There's something that God does in the life and the heart of a righteous man. This at some level is is one that God has chosen to use for his good news, his story. Not only is Noah described as a righteous man, but it says he is a blameless man. In Hebrew, it's the word tamim. It means complete or unscathed. I love this definition of the word blameless. It means intact. He was put together in his generation. Another translation says what? Amongst his contemporaries, which means that he's in the mix of everyone else. And he remains what? Blameless. Think about this. It's easy to be blameless if one is chained to a wall like monks in cloistered asceticism. You remove yourself, it's pretty easy to be blameless. But that's not what Noah did. He was in the midst of this world, this dark world. Well, no doubt it's closely connected and related to righteous I think it's different in the sense that one may be called, one may be described righteous, whereas I believe that blameless is the proof of one's righteousness. Let me say that again. I think that there's a similarity between these two words, but blameless is what is the proof of one's righteousness. Think about this picture for a, for a moment that we want to draw is such that take your name, okay, your personhood, your character, your reputation, because you have one, like it or not, sorry, and you put it out there, placed before anyone and everyone to examine, to investigate. Your name, your person, your reputation. Google it. What comes up? Search and dig, ask any question, research, do the homework, and this one's character right right here comes out intact, comes out unscathed. Think about this. There is no dirt you can find on this man. Now, how how far back do you have to go? Years ago, when my dad just um, began his his journey in the Navy, he was stationed for two years at the White House with the U.S. Navy Honor Guard um, during the Kennedy administration. Now, someone who's going to be literally standing next to the President of the United States, you have to have some clearance work done. we got to check this guy out. I remember dad was telling me, they didn't just talk to what? 
the neighbors that he grew up alongside of, they went back, get this, they're talking to his second and his third grade teacher. Do you have any dirt on this guy? That's in a sense what's happening when we describe Noah. There's no dirty secrets. There's no skeletons in the closet. Not only was he righteous, but his character, proof of his righteousness, was intact, unscathed. He was blameless. It also says that he walked with God. Now you're like, doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? Correct. A similar description given to Enoch in the previous chapter. That was only back in the spring. Chapter 5, verse 22. Noah is described like Enoch as one who walked with God. Both the NIV and the NLT attempt to bring some clarity by adding respectfully that, that it means that Noah walked faithfully with God. Or one says that Noah walked closely with God. I think it's probably best understood by, by meaning this, that Noah walked in accordance with with the way of God, the will of God. Today we would say what? Now that we have scripture, you walk according to the word of God. The interesting part here is that it is totally, he is totally unlike everyone else. There was no one else that was described like this. In a population that we talked about last week, what? In the hundreds of millions, if not billions. I like how James Montgomery Boyce refers to Noah simply as a solitary saint. I love that. There is no one like him. And there's something cool. There is something courageous about a willingness when your convictions are set that any one of us are willing to what? We're willing to go it alone. We're willing to go it alone with the fact that everyone else may just head to the party and we don't. There's something to that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he first began to preach in London in 1855, he was ridiculed perhaps more than any other man in his generation. They said that he was preaching in outmoded gospel, foolishness. Although many came to hear him, the sophisticated commentators of the day argued that his popularity with the rabble or his popularity with the lowlife would be short-lived, and it says, quote, he would be up like a rocket and down like a stick, was their judgment. But Spurgeon hung on, saying that although he stood alone, he stood on the word of God, knowing that he cannot be shaken. He said that he was willing to be called a dog now, knowing that in 50 years, he would be vindicated, while those who had reputations now would be discredited. Today, we remember Spurgeon, but cannot think even of one of the names of his detractors. In a sense, an example of a willingness, maybe what, for you to be the only righteous one in your entire classroom. Maybe you're the only righteous family in your neighborhood. You're the only righteous one in your family, 
we understand the example that is given as we just get a brief description of Noah's life. Secondly, we have an explanation of Noah's salvation. An explanation, excuse me, of Noah's salvation. I think you know me. I, I can be... I can be a bit inquisitive. I ask people questions, and I like to ask questions about people, and I love to learn about them and know how and why. I ask questions about people's history and background and their families and strengths and weaknesses and likes and dislikes, and I'm fascinated at some level of the diversity that exists. How is it that Drew can wake up before anyone else, it's pitch dark, and go run five miles? Like, nobody else does that. Why? I wonder. What makes them? What, 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 what allows uh, Craig Brady, what like ticks inside of him? He takes a stump of wood and then just like turns it into an otter eating his lunch. Like how? How is it that Pastor Aaron loves peanut butter the way that he does? Like it just, I don't understand it. And we ask questions. Why is that? We're all different. Psalm 139 says what? And I was reminding someone of it just this week at a funeral that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Each story is unique. When it comes to Noah, I've wondered, and I know I'm not alone here, you've got to wonder as well. How did Noah get to be righteous and blameless in the eyes of the Lord? He's the only one. Am I the only guy that would ever ask that question? Like, how did there is no Awana for him to go to? He did not get raised in Sunday school. There's no discipleship program at all. Now, certainly going back, his father named Lemek, what? has an awareness of the darkness, particularly pertaining to the curse, and certainly has a hope for his son, hopefully like any one of us fathers or grandfathers have for our children. And he names him Noah, which strictly speaking, literally means rest or relief. And Lemek says what? If you recall in chapter 5, verse 29, this one, we'll call him Noah, this one shall bring us relief. But it appears quite obvious that Lemek was more concerned about his relief from or rest from what? Our work and from the painful toil of our hands than the rest and relief from our own sins or from brokenness or destruction that surrounds us. As a matter of fact, we know that it says what? After Noah was born, Lemek lived 595 years having other sons and daughters. There's many of them. And apparently, none of them followed the Lord. So as Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness, his own brothers and sisters, like there is no one. How does that happen? As I briefly touched on last week, the answer, I believe lies in the previous verse, the verse that we read last week. 
Let me remind you what it says. In verse 8, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I want to intentionally, I want us today to intentionally note the order is especially important here. The order is especially important. It's very, very easy for people to read this and come to conclusion that Noah found favor with God because he was righteous or because he lived a blameless life. It's easy to come to that conclusion, but that would be dead wrong. There's an order here. Actually, Noah's righteousness was the product of his having found favor. And therefore is the proof of that favor, not the grounds for it. Remember this, verse 9 comes after verse 8. Now there's something, as we step back, there is something great that is happening. There is a great biblical principle when it comes to soteriology here. The doctrine of salvation. Namely what? That the grace of God comes before anything and everything else. That's why we preach in our church, sola gratia, by grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear. Many confuse this. Many confuse the order of salvation. We call it what? The ordo salutis. And thankfully, this narrative right here reminds us that there is structure and order when it comes to the hope that God offers for mankind. <clears throat> you read this to your children, I'm sure. One of the most classic books in all of Christendom, apart from the scriptures themselves, arguably we would say is what? Is Pilgrim's Progress, which we know is in a sense subtitled From This World to That Which Is to Come, written by John Bunyan in 1678. And we read this to our children, we teach this to our children, we tuck them in at night. It holds, in a sense, some marvelous and wondrous theological lessons. And you will see, although it's a children's, in a sense, an allegory designed for a child to understand, there's some deep theological truths that are here. Presented in a way that's very easily understood. It describes salvation allegorically as a journey of a pilgrim. If one were to think of the map that begins what? The city of destruction to the celestial city. And we know that the journey is not a quick one. It's not an easy one. But it clearly emphasizes the doctrines of grace. Primarily, where does it all start? The fountainhead. Of salvation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are portrayed as that. Now, why, why, why do I mention this? Why is this order so important? Because too often, people today think that their righteousness gains God's favor. People think that if they do the right thing, it earns them or it wins them somewhat parking spots in heaven. When the exact opposite, the exact opposite is what we see in Scripture. We know that Paul clarified this in Galatians chapter 3 when people were falling back into, in a sense, like we have to just live right. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. It's more than just our works. 
Something bigger is at stake here. Galatians chapter 3. Did I say Colossians earlier? Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who, who has bewitched you? Who's fooled you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, a rhetorical question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Down in verse 7 it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand. You see an emphasis here intentionally on what salvation is something that we have by faith in the grace of God. In the grace of God. The starting point, what is written here in the book of Galatians, the starting point for understanding the gospel, Paul says, is the fact that Jesus Christ has been crucified. That is the foundation of which we build everything. Likewise, look at Noah. By accepting in faith that which the Lord revealed to him, he trusted, he was saved, and he was safe. Thus he lived set apart. He lived as light in a dark world. Do, do you do that? Do you know that? Do you understand that? That the way that we live is based on what we believe and have faith in. It's God's grace and God's grace alone. Now as an extra measure of just sheer delight, we have this very last verse that you're like, well, what is this getting to? I call it an indication of God's promise to Noah. The last verse, verse 10, is simply an arrow. It's kind of like a mile marker along the way that says, don't worry, this is coming. Don't worry, there's a plan here. It is an arrow that points us toward the future. Therefore, it's an introduction to or an indication to a great promise by introducing us to Noah's offspring, Shem, which is interesting. He's not the oldest son, but he's the son of what most known by way of blessing, the one that God chooses to use in his line from, from Noah to Shem. It's through that line comes Abraham, comes Moses, comes David. It points to other verses here. When we're introduced to his sons in verse 10, and we're going to see this, and we'll unpackage this in the chapters and verses to follow, but let me direct your attention just a little bit because this is pointing us to. Further down in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 6, I will establish my covenant with you. You should come into the ark, you, your sons, there they are, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And it's detailed even more in Genesis chapter 9. Again, the same idea. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And he's pointing to something here, even by the introduction of his sons, his offspring. And he says, I have a promise for you. And we have to be reminded that there is what? There's good news in the midst of even the darkness of the world that surrounds us, the destruction, devastation. 
It points to a, a covenant, the word is used. A covenant is what? Is a promise. Hopefully, those of you that have been married remember the moment. Husbands, do you recall this? Do you promise to keep and to cherish and protect her as long as you shall live? Wives, do you remember this? Do you promise to love, to honor, and to obey him, forsaking all others? As long as you both shall live, what happens? You hear it, you say it, you sign a piece of paper, stamp it, put a ring on it. It is a most serious matter. And yet, sadly, what happens? If you were to just stick within that one analogy or illustration, men and women break covenants all the time. Men and women break covenants covenants husbands and wives break covenants promises are broken all the time not so with god not so with god he always keeps his promise a covenant is a promise of god to people with whom he's dealing with in a special way from adam to noah to Abraham, to Moses, to David. Oh, Palmer Robertson calls a covenant a bond in blood sovereignly administered. There's something serious here as we are pointing to the hope of a promise that is going to be given. Now, these closing words point us to a covenant that is very, very different. We'll see in the Noahic covenant. is very different from the first one that we were introduced with. The covenant that was made, what? To Adam, or the Adamic covenant. Uh, that was a covenant of works, a covenant where there's conditions. God establishes with Adam. Do you remember all the way back, and it'll probably be like February, March, April, somewhere in that window? Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. If you obey me, this is what? Conditional. This is, this is what? If you do this, if you don't eat of the fruits... You will continue to live a life of blessing that flows from God's favor. Remember Adam and Eve in the pristine perfection of the garden. Hold on to this promise, this covenant. Dutch theologian Herman Bavik says it like this. After creating man and woman, after his own image, God showed them their destiny and the only way in which they could reach it. He made a promise but it was conditional. It was based on, are you going to do this or not? And we know what happened when it's left to the works of man. Or how about the Mosaic covenant based on the law? It's conditional. If you obey this, it will go well with you. How, how, did, those, how did those go? When it's left up or depends upon man's work? How did that go when it depends upon man's obedience? Thankfully, this covenant that we're having a pointer, an indicator to, this is what's coming, the Noahic covenant. We will see and we will study, it is not dependent upon works. It is a covenant of grace, we call it. Specifically God's promises as we will get to. In chapter 9, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Signed, sealed, 
what delivered with the sign of a rainbow a promise and you're like aren't we kind of getting ahead of ourselves here yes but we're pointing to something we have to keep in mind praise god we're giving these reminders praise god we're giving these indicators why because we have to be reminded it's not dependent upon us it's dependent upon god and God alone. And we will learn what of this unconditional covenant that does not depend upon anything that Noah or his descendants has to do in order to fulfill the covenant. The promise is based on God's faithfulness alone. And God always does what he promises. Finally, and far better, what? And this is, again, points us that there's, there's another covenant. God's what? Promise far greater than what i'm not going to flood the earth again is the promise that god will forgive sin and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned toward him jesus christ we know as we focus all of our attention to the cross jesus christ we know is the mediator of this what new covenant that we read about that we learn about that has been offered to every one of us. And his death on the cross is the basis, is what seals that promise. We, we pause regularly, the third Sunday of every single month, to focus on the communion table, the, the bread and the cup. And we read from 1 Corinthians about this new covenant. Let me, just, let me just prepare our hearts by reading from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. Here's the scene for us as we prepare our hearts to focus on what? What is pointing. Noah's day was pointing toward. We look back on the cross. Luke 22. When the hour came, he reclined at table. Speaking of Jesus. And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, this blood that is poured out for you is the new covenant. There's that word. New covenant in my blood. You, you do understand what's happening here. All the way from back in the Old Testament, we have indicators that point what? To uh, something that is offered to you and I this morning. The foundation, the doctrine that we build everything upon is the good news of the gospel, and the gospel rests in the message and the work, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You know, we are actually defined, like what defines us as a church is, is 
is, is the partaking together of these elements. This is part of who we are. We regularly just pause everything. And we what? We, we take this bread and we remind you that this is what? This is not literally, physically, but it's a picture, a symbol of the body of Christ that was broken. And we what? We know that when we touch something and smell something and feel something and what? Taste something, it, 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 it sticks with us. We remember those things. That's what Jesus did with his disciples. We just read about that in Luke chapter 22. They broke the bread. They passed around. They ate it. It says that they took the fruit of the vine. He poured it out. And he said, this is a picture of what? My blood. A picture of the new covenant. It's not dependent upon your works. Praise God for that. God is a word. God, God is good to his word. He keeps his promises. And the reminder that we have of that is in this very bread and cup that we partake of this morning. And so we want to invite you as believers, you know, as members who've committed to covenant, what, alongside of one another, to live life, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And what binds us together is the work, the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. I'm going to ask the, the, the elders and the deacons, the way we're going to do it is this, and, and whether or not you're new here, and this is different for you, if you are a believer and you've seen it in different ways, that we're actually going to, to invite you to come up, and the elders and deacons will serve you the, the, the cup and the bread, and you'll go back to your seats and we'll take it together as family. We're a body of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. So man, I'd encourage you to come up now and prepare to, to serve this. And let me make, make it very, very clear here that this communion table is, is not just for anyone. If you're here this morning and you have not acknowledged the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus, the Messiah, the only one, and you have not made that decision, I don't want to be rude, particularly if you're a guest here, but I want to be respectful and my authority, in a sense, is beyond me. It's based in the word of God. I ask you politely not to take of this. Don't come forward. It's not really for you because you've not made that choice. You've not accepted the gift that has been offered to you. However, if you are here today and you are reminded that, yes, it is a broken, dark world, and you've contributed to that for your own sinfulness, and you know, you know the consequences of sin according to Scripture, the wages of sin is death. But God loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then I invite you to partake in this. I think it's important as well that we take a moment just to quiet our hearts and thank the Lord for forgiving us, for offering himself to die on our behalf. And after that moment of silence, I encourage you to come up, return to your seats, and we will take of this together as family.
Thank you, my brothers. Would you pray with me? Father, as our heads are bowed in just absolute quietness, we are just so grateful. We're grateful that we're not dependent upon ourselves. It's not our work. That, that we don't have it and we just can't do it. And we thank you, Lord, that as our attention is drawn this morning, we thank you for your word that all the way back in the pages of the Old Testament point to this moment, this promise, this covenant. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace, your mercies. Thank you, Lord, that you, you made us, but you see us even now, and you love us. You forgive us of our sins and Lord, the promise of eternal life and the hope that comes from that. Yes, there are the challenges, Lord, of responsibilities to live in righteousness, to be blameless. But we thank you, Lord, that ultimately we admit that we fall short and we give you all the praise that it's only the Lamb of God without blemish that takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for this bread that is a picture of your body and this cup that we're about to drink that is a picture of your blood that is poured out help us lord to be nourished and to be strengthened and to go out with a hope to live lord even if need be to live unique from everyone else around us as we keep our eyes on you we love you and we thank you for this moment bless this to our body in your name we pray amen Paul wrote, says that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and may he come quickly. As Matt comes, let me just remind you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.